Friends, my name is Andy Maddock. I'm lead pastor here. It's so good to be with you this morning as we share in God's story. We are finishing our series on doubt. Today we do talk about suffering. So in our Wrestling with Doubt, Finding Faith series, Adam Hamilton found that the number one volume of questions when it came to his church's understanding of what their doubts were as people of faith, and also if they were going to articulate the questions of doubt that come from their friends and families who might be interfaith, who might be agnostic or atheistic, uh, the, the number one answer was, why did the innocent suffer? That becomes a defining question of our faith. Because for 51 other weeks out of the year, we proclaim a good and loving God who cares deeply about your experience. And so we come to the question this morning, what does it then mean that the innocent suffer and seem to suffer at such a propensity, such a high rate? Why does it seem that we live in this system that seems to reward the wicked and the bad and seems to punish the good and the undeserving? I get where that question comes from, be it natural disaster, accident, injury, or the direct suffering that we perpetuate upon one another, it makes good sense to me. In fact, I feel like you're not a full person of faith if you can't at least live into some of that conviction about asking the why about suffering. If you don't and can't ever, I feel like you have not lifted your eyes to see some of the suffering, all of the suffering, the magnitude beyond the scope of your perception of the suffering that you're surrounded by every day, even in this beautiful valley of ours. Children who are homeless, those who go hungry, those who are dealing with health issues, the visible suffering of some and the invisible suffering of others, be it with chronic pain, mental health issues, or whatever the case might be. We can never fully know anyone else's story, but I promise you there's likely layers to this sermon that are a part of it. The musical The Book of Mormon puts it a great way for me. One of the characters in that in the song Man Up asks an important question. Oh God, why do you let bad things happen? But more to the point, why do you let bad things happen to me? We are quick to internalize our experience. We see the bad things that happen in the world, but they're far more poignant for us when they fall right in our lap. I actually think the song's incomplete. I don't care as much about my suffering at times when I see the suffering of others, particularly my spouse, my kids, my parents. I live finally into a place where I understand some of that atonement language that our scriptures use and that Jesus uses. Not them, but me. And I've been in so many pastoral care settings where someone has lost a child to an accident or some tragedy where their responses inevitably, oh, if only I could make one wish happen, it's that God had taken me and not them. They had so much more to live for, so much more potential. I've done plenty, and I know my vices and my struggles. Why not me? Great question. So this particular doubt conversation that we're having now, in my opinion, is ultimately not just questions about individuals and their suffering, but they are deep and abiding questions about God. One of them is, where is God when people suffer? God, you claim to care deeply for us. You claim to have delivered the Israelite people from their suffering in Egypt. You came to deliver us through Jesus on the cross. You care deeply about these patterns in life, and yet we continue to see injustice, misogyny, racism, bitter hatred, just between cultures within this part of our country, let alone the struggles we feel on a global perspective. Where are you in the midst of our suffering. Not just a question of where, but a a question of why. 
Why did God allow this suffering to happen? But more than that, oftentimes our question is one of causality. Why did you cause this to happen, O oh God? I see that a lot with my counseling of people who are dealing with very difficult diagnoses in their families. Parents who look at the suffering of their children. Children who are worried about the dementia of their parents or a cancer diagnosis. Who will say, of all of the people, why did God cause this one good person to suffer this much? Where are you, God? Why are you doing this? And the third big question is, when? When were you going to fix it? When will you show up in the way that I pray for or anticipate what I sing about in my songs or I long for in my heart? Where, why, and when are you moving, God, when it comes to human suffering? Mm. Powerful questions for the human experience. And over the top of that, I want to, as we talk about doubt, allow us a little bit of space and freedom to doubt some of the assumptions that you and I have about how God works. Because the question of suffering forces our hand. They're important questions. I brought a pair of books into the pulpit with me today, two that are very tiny but absolutely formative. One is Rabbi Harold Kushner's When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He uses the suffering and the narrative of Job from the Old Testament to talk about God's presence in our story and how to handle uh, unmerited or unwarranted suffering. Um, and one of the powerful claims that he makes in here is that God can't do everything, but God can do some things important. I hang on to that from Rabbi Kushner. The other one that's always struck me, I was invited to read it in high school and again in college, uh, and then have revisited a couple of times, is Elie Wiesel's Night. Uh, Dr. Wiesel just passed away a few years ago, but one of the passages that he writes, if you're not aware of his experience with the Holocaust and his kind of autobiographical narrative, uh, he actually has another book where he puts God on trial for the experience of the Holocaust. But one of the passages that I always just kind of have dog-eared, man is too small, too humble, and inconsiderable to seek to understand the, the mysterious ways of God. But what can I do? I'm not a sage. I'm not one of the elect. I'm not a saint. I'm just an ordinary creature of flesh and blood. But I've got eyes too. And I can see what they are doing to us. So where is divine mercy? Where is God? How can I believe? How could anybody believe in a merciful God? Our direct experience of the suffering provides us the opportunity to ask some good questions of God and about our assumptions about how God is to work in your life and mine. First assumption. God always protects those who have faith. One of the claims of the Psalms, hence the picture, for you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. Psalm 62. This affirmation that God is a bulwark and a shield, that God will protect us if we have but faith enough. It goes back to our conversations about prayer, about heaven, about hell and redemption that we've had for the last couple of weeks. Surely God will do what is right for the righteous. I affirm and believe in a God who's not just a tower around us, but who's willing to suffer in the trenches with us. Who's there when we feel most vulnerable and most threatened, not just when we feel like we are surrounded in a big tower. Second assumption I want us to challenge about how God works is an affirmation that's made in a whole bunch of Christian churches all over our world. And that suffering is a punishment for sin. 
be it yours, your parents, or something cosmic like original sin that Adam and Eve sowed into the human experience. We suffer because the world is broken and dark. The affirmations of Scripture, by the way, are that this is a good creation. And while we have that garden story that then uh, uh, provides us in the midst of a knowledge of good and evil, this moral dilemma of what is right and wrong, a separation then from the tree of life that we are going to die, what's true of our creation story is that we are invited into responsibility and accountability. And it's not always my sin that causes my suffering. And more often than not, it is my sin that might cause the suffering and punishment of another, probably unjustly. I want to challenge that assumption. And the third assumption I want to challenge is this. Everything happens for a reason. Professor Kate Bowler has a great book and a podcast about her stage 4 cancer diagnosis where she thought she was truly terminally ill since in remission, but her book is called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I Loved. That when you're faced with a critical terminal moment, if you can't figure out the reason, the why, does that mean that God is absent from your suffering and your journey? I mentioned earlier this sense of who we are created to be. Our our text for this morning is a simple one. A couple of verses from the creation narrative. I want to share them with you. Genesis 1, the first creation story. It helps us to understand who we are. Maybe not in a scientific way, but certainly in a moral one. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, God created them. And what happens? God blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That word subdue could be substituted, be steward of it. Build it. Or as it says next, rule over it. Have control, autonomy, and authority. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These are words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And who we are created to be in a scriptural narrative, it is not people who are so radically dependent on the activity of God to fix things, but those who are encouraged and in fact sent out to be difference makers and stewardship happen. So if we're living into this tension where everything doesn't happen for a reason, where sin is, the only, is not the only way to explain our suffering, where God might be just as present to the vulnerable and the suffering as God is to those who seem to be protected by faith, the foundational question that I wrestle with and that I want to provide a couple of answers for today is what then causes suffering? Why do we suffer? Where do, how, what can we lay it at the feet of? And how can God be a part of that? Related to our Genesis story, the first one for me is human activity and freedom. I'm a Wesleyan through and through, a a Methodist, uh, and I firmly believe in the power of free will and human freedom. I don't believe that God would act in a way that violates my freedom and free will. I don't believe in a causality of God that God is going to force me to behave in a particular pattern, but God will surely walk with me and shower me with grace and redemption and mercy such that I might know a better way to go. But what is clear is that a large percentage of the suffering in this world of ours is rooted in human choice and behavior. Not just by choice and direct activity, but by consequence of indirect action. How we treat our poor, how we treat our hungry, leads to their suffering and in a way that our activity, our abundance, has an impact on them, rooted in our freedom to choose to go another way. 
We also see and affirm that a part of that human activity and that freedom is the potential, and maybe even for some of you the propensity, to choose violence, misogyny, hatred, racism as a pattern of life. That's not rooted in who God is or God's intent for the world. And indeed, a part of your freedom that we take up as Methodists in our baptismal covenant is to choose the freedom that Christ gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. That's one of the questions you answer for yourself or for your children in their baptism. If so, say, I do. That's a claim we make. To identify that there will be this great struggle that we are inevitably a part of, and oftentimes it is human activity that causes suffering. Sometimes that's a consequence of our own choices, but not always. Not always. A second major layer to this, and it's further beyond our control, it's hard to embrace, is natural disaster. I believe in the sense that the world seeks this kind of homogeneity, this stasis, this balance, such that many of the uh, natural things that we see, the earthquakes and the shifting of tectonic plates, the floods and everything else, the storm systems even that we've seen in the last week, are all a part of a natural process that this world goes through, sometimes curative, sometimes restorative, and that the patterns of drought and the things that we suffer with are also a part of this natural order of things. As a student of philosophy, I wonder, because I do not believe it to be true, could God have created a world absent from disaster? I don't know, but what I do know is that God didn't make this world that way. These things happen as a natural response to the creation that surrounds us. I know Friday when that little earthquake rolled through and everybody jumped on social media to comment about it. There are those who are deeply affected by it, right? Your mind goes right back to 94 in Northridge, even on the little rollers. If you were here for that time, if you were displaced, if you struggled to get resources, natural disaster is a part of our suffering and a part of our trauma. The next is illness. I truly believe that bodies are fearfully and beautifully and wonderfully made. I said at the first service, I can barely keep my seven-year-old car running, but somehow God's kept this 46-year-old body that I don't take great care of moving, that I have the potential to live into my 70s, 80s, 90s, or 100. I was uh, dealing with a, a professor of biology when I was in SMU a million years ago, and he said, I firmly believe if they have not been born yet, it will be in the next 10 years that someone will be born with the genetic possibility with our healthcare system to live to be at least 120 years old. Think about that. Think about that when you're doing your retirement planning. How do I finish at 55 and live for another 65 years? In our, right? That our, that, but illness is a part of that same system. Within the beauty of these bodies is a frailty, a vulnerability to choices that we make, what we eat, how much exercise we have, but also social factors, carcinogens and things that are well beyond our control and not a consequence of direct choice. Sometimes we just lose the genetic lottery in the midst of our experience of illness. And the powerful thing for me is, is I see God moving in the midst of that suffering with people who come alongside in the midst of brokenness. Therapists, doctors, nurses, technicians, clinicians, those who will serve those who are suffering. For me, they are a witness to the idea that God is a part of the human experience. 
what a gift it is that they have been lifted up, trained, instructed, and called, just as surely as I am to talk good, called to use their hands, their lives, and their knowledge to make other people better, healthy, in all the ways that they can. And knowing some of the doctors that I know, often at their own expense and exhaustion, illness is a part of human suffering. The third piece is the inexplicable and the ununderstandable. The fourth piece, and that's accident. Accident. Those things beyond our control that might be a part of the human experience, that we lay at the sin and the feet of others. Somebody else took that drink and got behind the wheel of the car that killed a high school friend of mine. One of the college friends I lost in another car accident was somebody who was a friend in the passenger seat was reaching across to get a CD from one of those old visor-mounted CD things. And her hand went in front of Elizabeth's eyes. These accidents that we don't quite have a full explanation or understanding of how they happen, why they happen. They lead to the questions, where is God? Why did God allow it? Why did God cause it? And when, oh, when could God fix it for us? For me, as I wrestle with these questions, they don't serve as a doubt for me that talks about the absence of God. For me, the, the existence, the, the, the sheer volume of these four things helped highlight for me the need for God. The power of the Christian community to come alongside folks in the midst of these traumas, in the midst of these struggles. I don't believe in a God who causes accidents, but I believe in a God who can use us and a God who will independently work for the sake of restoration and redemption. So what do we do as God's response to suffering? Part of what I try to do as a pastor is offer a God who doesn't have easy answers, like if you only had more faith, He'd be your tower. If you only sinned less, you wouldn't be punished. Everything happens for a reason, and we are not wise enough to know God's ways. Like Eli Wiesel, I have eyes and I see suffering and I long to know. So I offer a God who suffers with who sees God's children suffering and longs to be with them in their brokenness. I offer a God who has the capacity and the utility to offer redemption to broken human experiences. The people of faith that I've seen who have struggled with illness, who struggled with accidental injury, who've been able to walk that valley of the shadow of death, so to speak, in a faithful way, have done so from a means of being able to say, I know my where and my when, and I don't even need to know all of the why because I know that God's been with me at all of these steps. And to offer a God who is interested in resurrection, who doesn't want death to be the final answer, doesn't want injury, illness, or accident to have all of the power from the human experience. If that was true, we would truly be grieved by death's deep sting. But eternity is rooted in the hands of a generous and loving God. So church, we're wrestling with doubt. And the last bit of this is to talk about the crossroads at which we stand. We're about to set out on a Lenten journey where we're talking about being on the road with Jesus. What it means to have these encounters at the roadside throughout the six weeks of Lent and just how transformative the experience of Jesus is therein, there on the roadside. 
We stand at a crossroads in the midst of our wrestling with doubt, longing to be teased into faith. And so we find ourselves again and again at split points like this. But the dichotomy that we picture when it comes to doubt and faith, I think misses an important point. Because the simple truth I would proclaim, church, is that God is on both paths. If you step forward in faith, God's going to go with you no matter where you head. It's a powerful challenge to take the next step in faith and trust. In a moment's time, in a little bit, we're going to take our offering. And I happen to sneak a peek. Uh, Tim's going to play as his offertory, a song by Jenny Owens. And the first verse of it really strikes me. I want to share it to you as I close. It's called, If You Want Me To. The pathway is broken and the signs are unclear. And I don't know the reason why you brought me here. But just because you love me the way that you do, I'm going to walk through the valley if you want me to. We're called to take the next step in faith, church. To live transformatively and triumphantly. A word about what I want to do as a next steps before I pray and close. Last week we had the opportunity to adorn our doubt trees with unanswered prayers. Those struggles in our life and our story, those things that we would name, that we continue to carry in prayer. After I pray for us, I'm going to actually invite Tim to play a little bit uh, and invite you to walk that path again. But today as you come down to the tree, I want you to take a tag. But more than that, I don't want you to even look for yours. I want you to take someone else's. As a covenantal relationship that we don't know the fullness of this story, but I'm going to be in prayer for it this week. I'm going to be in prayer for it as we start Lent. And maybe, just maybe, I'll pray for it throughout the season of Lent. So that no matter which path we find ourselves walking down, we know that we are not doing it alone. Take a tag and be in prayer for it. Those that are left on the tree, our staff is going to collect and pray for them throughout Lent. And hold those tenderly as well. I don't know what life faces. But because you love me, I'm going to walk the path that you need me to. Join me in a moment of prayer.